0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host Morteza Hajizadeh, and today I'm very glad to be speaking with uh, Dr. Michael Johnston. Professor Michael Johnston is a professor, of, is an associate professor of English at Purdue University, and he's published a book with Oxford University, Oxford University Press called "The Middle English Book: Scribes and Readers, 1350 to 1500." Michael, welcome to New Books Network.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a
0: pleasure to be here. Uh, before we start uh, the interview and talking about it, but could you please briefly introduce yourself? And I'm really interested to know how you became interested in uh, medieval English and especially the culture of writing books in medieval English. hmm
1: yeah, so I'm a an associate professor, as you said, at Purdue University. We're in uh, West Lafayette, Indiana, so about two hours from Chicago for those um, who aren't familiar with us, and um, I've been teaching here since 2008. I got interested in medieval literature particularly. Um, it's a very common story among medievalists. Uh, I had a class, an undergraduate class, where we discussed King Arthur and the whole concept of a central character sort of evolving across time and being used by different authors just uh, just totally grabbed me and I knew that I wanted to go to graduate school and I wanted to continue pursuing medieval literature. When I got to graduate school um, I did my master's degree at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and one of the first days there they pulled out some medieval manuscripts and just having the contact with them was um, was enough for me to realize that I wanted to sort of You know, pursue research on that on that topic. So, um, I came back to the states, did a PhD at at Ohio State University, and that's where I sort of really dove into um, the cultures of manuscripts, and I've been working on that ever since.
0: And uh, we'll talk about uh, the the concept of a manuscript or a book Mm -hmm. soon. But before that, how how did this book come about? The Middle English book. Why did you decide to write a book about different types of? Books, if I may say so, use that word.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, they are books. So, perfect term to use. Um, I wrote my first book in 2014 on the genre of Middle English romance and focused on the manuscripts of romance. So, it was a kind of narrow um, study of this particular genre. But as I started working with uh, doing the work on that first book about manuscripts, I kind of started wanting to look at other texts beyond romance, started wanting to look at man- Chaucer manuscripts, started you know, wanting to look at a whole a host of other um, sort of things that people were reading in order to contextualize the work that I was doing on on romance. And I didn't have time to talk about any of that stuff in the first book. So I just kind of kept coming back to it. Um, and so I kind of cast my net wider and wanted to really in this book, I had the luxury of, of having more time to work on this book. So I really wanted to think about kind of loosely how books worked as objects in culture um, in the late manuscript period, kind of right before the printing press, but when we had a a real proliferation of vernacular literature. And so, yeah, this was the fruit of sort of nine to ten years of just sort of going back and casting my net more widely and going back to the archives and looking at more and more manuscripts and sort of seeing if I couldn't come up with a kind of wider, more interesting, more more cohesive um, argument about how manuscripts worked in culture.
0: Mm. and um so I'm, i studied english myself but my field of mm. study wasn't really medieval english and after i graduated they became more interested in in the whole medieval culture history mm. simply because of all the stereotypes around it they wrongly call it dark ages but then when you go and study you found lots and lots of books this uh this this culture of research and writing books and um i i came to kind of pick up some of the nuances in the idea of book but Again, before coming to your book I I would just use every, I mean use the term manuscript or a book but anyhow you you kind of problematize the existing vocabulary to talk about uh books or manuscript in, uh, in 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 the middle in in Middle Ages and you feel that this is inadequate so why is it that the existing vocabulary is inadequate to describe the different types of manuscripts they've had in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and that's really – I think that was that, that sort of um, dissatisfaction with the way we talk about books uh, and existing scholarship was really at the root of a lot of – was driving a lot of the the, the early thinking for this book. The, I think the reason I found it unsatisfactory was simply that it was extremely impressionistic without being able to define terms are use. so for example i have a, the, the whole first chapter of the book talks about it's called nomenclature and it talks about the different terms we use and one of the things that really became dissatisfied with was just how impressionistic the 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 way we use terminology was and for example we'll talk about um someone will isolate a particular manuscript and say oh this is a commercial manuscript or this is made by a professional scribe but we don't have the other side of that we don't have a lot of historical evidence for what was a professional scribe or what did you know an a, an industry of commercial book production look like and so we're kind of um you know very impressionistically looking at a manuscript and saying oh this is fancier implicitly this is what we're doing this is fancier than the things i'm used to seeing or what in my experience is a quote unquote average makeup so i'll call this professional without having a real um sense of what that meant on the ground and so um and and i think that that's understandable i'm very careful in 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 this chapter to say like look we we all do this cuz it's the best we can do i did it myself i quote myself you know using these using these terms um in what i now think are sort of unsatisfying ways but um it makes sense because manuscripts are really hard to work with they take a lot of time to work with one manuscript and really try to get your mind around it and so to try to talk about … sort of more cohesively across culture um, how manuscripts worked is really difficult, um, and so I think it's really understandable that you know you spend all your time working on one manuscript or a small corpus. You have to use terms, but we just – we haven't had the, the sort of external um, evidence to, to flesh out those terms, so my book was looking for a sort of different way than the sort of impressionistic m- m- mode of looking at a manuscript and kind of judging it based on just the other things you happen to have looked at.
0: And and then you come up with uh, your categorization, and one of the elements used is the proximity of users and producers, which I found really interesting. So, can I talk about your categorization to address this inadequacy? And what is that uh, that 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 uh, uh, let's say criteria that use the proximity of users and producers? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So this is. I mean, again, the project started with this dissatisfaction, and and I said, like, let me go look at a large corpus and see if I can't kind of think through better ways to discuss um, to discuss books and come up with better terminology. And what really jumped out at me was we all we all um, assume, and I think for good reason, that almost all manuscripts are bespoke. Um, and that's a, a term that reader that listeners may be familiar with, but it's worth pondering here and unpacking for a moment. Um, so in terms of production of any sort of item, I think you you have basically two we have a kind of polarity here you have bespoke production which is the user and producer meet at some point and the producer says or the 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 user says the commissioner says, you know I want, Thing X made with you know with these criteria, and then the producer goes and makes it and makes it on commission for someone. And the other end of the spectrum would be commodity production, where you know think of like a a, a vending machine full of bottles of Coca Cola or something like they're all made um, in anticipation of a market, but they're not made for a particular user. And so it really struck me that the bespoke nature of of manuscripts is is um, is really essential. And so what does it mean for something to be bespoke? Well, as I started putting more pressure on that, you you realize that, well, users and producers are meeting at a certain juncture to create the manuscript, but that point of meeting um, can take on a variety of forms. And so that's, that's where, where my replacement um, for the sort of impressionistic terminology came from is thinking about we actually can have some evidence from the manuscripts themselves about the forms of interaction that likely took place or the I, – I guess you, to go back to your question, the proximity that likely li, uh, li, lies behind these books, the proximity in terms of the users and producers or the scribes and readers, if you want to say. So, so that exploring the um, variety of forms that that intersection can take on that, that, that arises from the evidence of the books themselves is, is kind of where I started to develop a, a new methodology for, um, for understanding books.
0: And uh, I previously, that was I guess a couple of years ago, I talked to someone. Uh, Mary Wellesley wrote a book about um, it was medieval, I, he, invisible hands. I guess it was about the culture of producing books. It was more or less a kind of a pop story, not, and it was written for for more general audience. And I'm um, into, and then yeah, I came. Did you, to sorry, him,
1: did you say that's Mary Wellesley?
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I reviewed her book. Um, mm. I forget the title of it off the top of my head, but yeah, yeah, it was great. It was Invisible great... hands,
0: or don't remember exactly. Yeah, and I think it came under two different titles. Yeah, uh, the other one was Gilded. That's anyway, Gilded Age. That's the one i That's the one yeah, I read. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But but that like, this gave me some understanding of how complex and difficult it was to produce a manuscript, and I'm really interested in knowing about this. For example, you talk about I'm I'm, I'm interested to know first of all were books in produced in one location, especially uh, illustrated manuscripts, which which I guess in, in, involved several different authors. And, and what evidence do we have, or what evidence, or what kind of method did you use to find the evidence that manuscripts, for example, were produced in different locations? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, uh, and that, that that's a great question because it kind of just gets at the whole methodology of, of the of mm. my entire book. Um, so yeah, if you take uh, illustrated manuscripts, for example, with high with you know highly um, highly decorated books, those are the sorts of books I think where you can start to posit that's the sort of evidence that you can look for in a book that you can start to posit that there probably is a greater distance between the user and the producer. Because historically we know that, um, that that book illustration, and I'm thinking of not 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 like simple like colored letters, but like gold and complex the illuminations that you know we're familiar with as sort of iconographic examples of, of medieval books. Um we know that historically much of that work was done in cities, in centralized locations. Um and so we, you know, we have evidence for book artists congregating in cities. And this, I think, is 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 what art historians have have more or less determined is that most of this was done locally. There were there there were exceptions. There were peripatetic artists who would go to you, um, but as I understand the work of art historians, it it tends to be a kind of centralized thing. So, um, so if you have a book that is very highly decorated, you can then assume that whoever the ultimate user was, they had to. You know, there had to be some process of getting the commission sent through these local um, through these centralized locations and in in England, particularly by the by the late 14th century and into the 15th century, the period that I'm looking at. A lot of this is a lot of the higher book decorators are understandably um, centralized in London. But if you think of the other end of the book, a kind of plain book. Um, that just as you know, text in black ink. That's the kind of thing that can be done that doesn't re- require one posit that it was done in a centralized location because writing is a much less specialized craft than decorating. Um, writing is done. There's there's bureaucracies throughout late medieval England um, and all kinds of you know small institutions as small as a household and a parish. Um, and so because writing is much more decentralized and much more widespread than than illustrating, um, you sort of have, you know, the less illustrated, the less fancy a book is, the more likely it could be made in proximity to the user. Um, so so those are the sorts of um, the sorts of. Pieces of evidence that I'm using to sort of um, start to categorize books based on based on the proximity of users mm-hmm. to producers. I realize I've strayed from your original question about book decoration, but it's kind of like the yeah. the starting point of the far of the greatest prox- uh, the the greatest distance putative distance between users and producers mm-hmm. is the really highly decorated book.
0: And, and do we know much about these professional artists or scribes who produce these manuscripts?
1: Um, you're wading into some of the most uh contested territory in scholarship so um and ter- actually questions that I studiously um a sidestep or remain a, a kind of maintain a study yeah, there's
0: like my curiosity so to ask you. <laughs>
1: no no it's great I mean and then stuff that I had you know that I'm certainly conversant with but but don't try to weigh in on so much of yeah. my own work um so yeah in terms of artists and it, if we're talking about scribes that's much more in my wheelhouse I feel much more competent to mm. to at least weigh in on that um if we're talking about artists I'm I'm purely sort of secondhand repeating what the scholarship says, because I don't in my own work kind of get into analyzing um, art. But um if you start with the the first part of your question, which was about book artists, um m- as I understand the methodology of art historians, you kind of look at a series of art of a series of picture, a series of illustrations, and based on identifying, isolating particular features you will say that, oh, that is by the Mm. same author or the same artist as that. So you can kind of compare across illustrations. And um, a few of those have been able to be attributed to named artists. Um, because mm-hmm. there will be an artist who will sign his work on occasion or has, mm-hmm. or they will have a, an, a, a document that sort of says so-and-so was the scribe who did this manuscript, and then you identify the manuscript elsewhere, and you can put them together um, that way. But even those identifications end up coming up under critique. So just as an example, um, the most prolific artist from – at least from England in the 15th century is named William Abel, A-B-E-L. Um, and there's there's sort of debate about how many you know originally there's a scholar who you know created a canon of Abel's illustrations, and then other people have started sort of pairing that back. So so these are controversial and they're not certainly um black and white. Um, mm. in terms of the scribes, I think it's um it's a similar sort of methodology that people have employed because most manuscripts are um, are not signed by the scribe. so, you're in a lucky situation if you can match the hand of a manuscript with a document that is signed, um, or you have a name, and then if you can confidently assert that the thing with the person's name is the same as the um, is the same handwriting as the as the manuscript in question, that's when you start to create the argument that oh, you know, Joe. You know, Joe Schmo over here, who signed this document, is the scribe of this manuscript because it's in the same hand. Again, those are controversial mm-hmm. um, methodologically, really controversial. That's kind of where a lot of the um, heat has been in, like at least vernacular manuscript studies in the past ten to fifteen years, mm-hmm. um, kind of arguing over the methodology of this and the and and particular identifications. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, let's talk about the types of magazines that were produced. And you, you talk about religious houses. What, what sort of manuscripts were producing religious houses in terms of genre? For me, I know that's a more or less a modern term. But
1: yeah, no, no, no. That's this is a great question. Um, so I mean, we we think of yeah. You you talked earlier about um, the stereotypes around the Middle Ages, and um, you know, all books were made by monks in monasteries. This is sort of that stereotype. And that's like you know, there's there's some truth to that in that up to around eleven hundred, this is the the typical historical narrative, is up to about eleven hundred, monopolies had more or less a um, a mono sorry, monasteries, houses mm. of religious houses of monks, um, and at that point it's mostly Benedictine monks, um, had a monopoly over Textual production, um, certainly production of manuscripts, and after about 1100, it starts to sort of move out into the secular world at least as an alternative or another site of manuscript production. Um, for the kind of stuff that I'm doing, by the 15th century, monasteries are still producing books, um, mostly Latin you know, materials for devotional purposes, for in-house purposes. Um, I'm working on literary manuscripts. I'm interested in the culture of reading, and there's… There's very little uh, man, uh, literary manuscripts being very, – very, actually, mm-hmm. there are very few literary manuscripts being produced in monasteries. Of the text that I looked at, and I'm sure we'll get into this as we go, um, I looked at a corpus of 202 manuscripts mm-hmm. for this project. And maybe eight of them can be attributed to religious houses. Um, there's a great um, research um, project called the Corpus of British... Of catalogs from British medieval libraries, I think it's called. It's produced by the British Academy, and they go through and edit all of the different institutions from the Middle Ages that had catalogs of their books. So it's not about the surviving books, but it's about their internal um, catalogs. And if you if you isolate the religious houses, you can you know you can just go through the indexes of these and you see how little, how few vernacular texts were owned by uh, monastic houses. So it seems to have been sort of a thing, um, that, that is, um, in the, in the secular world, secular meaning not part of, uh, of, uh, right, uh, of, uh, monastic houses. Um,
0: mm. and, um, again, one of the terms you use there is a streamlined books. Mm-hmm. How are they, what are streamlined books and how are they different from books produced in different locations?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think to, to. Help contextualize that term. It would probably help if I step back a little bit and 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 return to this question of my methodology of trying yeah. to look at um, trying to look a ac- trying to get on impressionistic vocabulary mm. to figuring out the sort of um, relationship between users and producers that the evidence of the books themselves can can lead us to. Um, so what I essentially did in this project was instead of as it, part of my dissatisfaction with um, the terminology that we've been using. Uh, … was that people would specialize in a certain type of book, like people work on Chaucer manuscripts, or mm-hmm. or I was a scholar who worked on manuscripts of Middle English romance and and on and on. Um, and instead, what I tried to do was I picked four texts that were um, relatively diverse and tried to look at all the surviving copies of those, thinking that would give me a fairly wide net. And so the streamlined books I would have are one of the categories I developed to say, I think we can profitably arrange books based on the proximity or distance between users and producers. So mm-hmm. the, earlier we talked about those highly decorated books, and I posit that as the category of um, the elaborate book, which the you have to assume the greatest distance between users and producers. That's the sort of thing where someone had to send away mm-hmm. to a, a metropole where, um, you know, book artists were congregated. The streamlined book is the next kind of category that I that I propose, and that is a very common sort of book where there are no there aren't any bells and whistles. You don't need to posit a sort of high end decorator, but it's made it, the evidence shows that it was made in uh, bias for a single commission. Um, and so this is this is the kind of book where um, they're often pretty plain. You might have decorated mm. initials. Um, It's often have blue and red paraffs, a little what we look, what we call paraff signs, um, that will sort of divide stanzas of poems up and such. But um, essentially, it's usually made by one scribe and it's copied, you know, seriatim. Like if there's one or two or three texts, they just kind of proceed in a row. And so it's the kind of thing where you imagine that uh, someone went to a scribe and said, "I want a copy of this text or these two texts," and then the scribe's turning it around as quickly as he can because he wants to make his money and get on to the next commission. So it's a kind of book that's that has codicological evidence, evidence from the books themselves that um, that would indicate a kind of direct, uh, a made on commission and made in a very straightforward way. And so I call them streamlined because the process is to be as sort of economical as possible to to get the book back to the reader mm-hmm. and move on to the next commission.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh you seem to have been muted I'm I'm not able to hear Oh you. sorry yeah no you're accidentally, back, yeah. yeah accidentally yeah accidentally muted my microphone no no worries yeah uh, and there's another category which is evolving books mm-hmm. so what is that category how is it different from um others
1: yeah so again um i i i do the the categories i propose are based on like decrease or um increasing proximity, increasing closeness Mm. between users and producers. So again, the elaborate book, the highly decorated book, which you have to send away for is the most distance. And then the streamlined book looks like it's made on commission. And so it's the kind of thing where it seems to be someone maybe slightly further or slightly closer to you than the elaborate book, but not probably someone in your household because the evolving book is the next category, which is where um, you have books that are changing as you go. Um, And so what I'm positing Lying behind those is some kind of. Um, I keep coming back to the term proximity, but I'll use it because it works here. Um, some kind of regular standing relationship between the people making the books and the people for whom they are eventually um, made, and that. And what I mean by that is just um, there's lots of books that very clearly kind of change their design as as they're in process. So whereas the streamline book was like one or two or three texts like produced clearly to a preordained plan, sticks to that and is done. The evolving book is the kind of thing where you might have um a team of scribes. So say you have one scribe who copies a poem and then he steps away. And 20 pages later he might copy 10 pages in a row and then he steps away. And then 30 pages later he might copy another single poem. And then in between you have another scribe doing something sort of irregular like this. Um and you might have one part of the book. So books were made in choirs, like like they still are today. If you look at a, if you open up a printed book, you'll see how um, the groups of Lee, the groups of the pages are. You know, you don't have a hundred page book isn't uh, isn't 50 pages of paper folded inside each other. They're little groups. So but choirs are free floating entities. So you might in an evolving book, you might have one choir that's about one set of texts, and it seems to grow or be truncated as it's going. So you can have kind of moving parts of this book that don't get put together until the very end. Um, and so there's all kinds of evidence inside of books that show um, that they're, again, they're evolving. They're being sort of changed as they go. And I think that. That implies um, some sort of some sort of proximity between users and producers, because um, you know what else is going to dictate? Oh, mm-hmm. you know, I want to add this text to this section, or or oh, that section should should um, be focused on medical text, and this section should be focused on devotional text, um, and so those sort of you know decisions that are being made on the fly, I think imply pretty pretty confidently, I think. Um, mm-hmm a kind of standing relationship between between users and producers.
0: And and do we know what kind of and again for the interest of the audience, what kind of books or topics they generally covered in these evolving books?
1: Um yeah, I would I would hesitate to make kind of overarching um comments across all of literature across all mm-hmm. of literary culture or literary culture um because i'm you know i i focused on these four literary texts and so yeah. the things that fell in within my remit i feel kind of comfortable talking about but i i think in general there it's miscellaneity um that is one of the features of these books um because so so for example you will find like texts that are exclusively focused on medicine Right, mm-hmm. so you might have, you might have a whole treatise on the plague, followed by recipes, and recipes are kind of accretive, right? They, you, they, you, they grow by accretion. So, you'll have um, recipes will tend to be like on loose leaves at the end of a book, and you might have many, many scribes coming along. So it's the kind of thing where a new recipe came to your attention, you jotted down in the book. So you will get these kind of evolving books that. Um, that have lots of medical tr- – so they can be focused on medicine. You'll get other evolving books that might be focused on, for example, devotional texts. So devotional texts – there's a lot of like, sh- a lot of short devotional texts that will be errors and such. Um, and so those are the kind of things that can grow by accretion too. Um, so you will have some sort of themed, what I call, evolving books, but then you'll also have some that are clearly just um, what I call grab bags you know you'll have like a literary text you might have a romance you might have a snippet of Chaucer then you might have a bunch of medical recipes and then you'll have a devotional text and then you'll have another literary text and then you'll have you know a text about caring for your horse and then you know you you will get this sort of grab bag which again i think who who what kind of book if you're making for if you're making a book like that for someone else what's going to dictate that kind of crazy miscellaneity Except that the person for whom you're making the book is in kind of regular contact, saying, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, add that," or yeah. "Yeah, I want more medical text, That that sort of thing. Um, I I just don't know how else you would account for that kind of miscellaneity unless there's a kind of proximity between the the person who's going to end up with the book mm. and the people making the book.
0: And again, uh, reading your book and listening to it, it just goes to show how different types of scholarship people or scribes or in general people in the middle ages were interested in it was not necessarily because again one of the clichés is that it's all religious art or religious text but now mm. it's science medicine astronomy
1: absolutely i mean whatever could whatever was available that could be written down people wanted to read i mean obviously you have different communities wanting want, different kind of readers wanting different kind of texts but there's a huge diversity of texts and yeah the idea that um the Middle Ages is entirely about piety and devotion and theology while that is certainly much more dominant than it is today um mm. they had a, you know extremely varied interests, cultural interests that they that they sought in their reading
0: matter for sure mm. and uh, I, I want to ask you about the dynamic between readers and uh, be, between producers and users but before that there was another category that I really found interesting due to yourself books and I'm really interested in this one given the technology really wasn't there to mass produce books and it certainly wasn't easy enormous amount of time and labor required so Mm -hmm. what were these do-it-yourself books and what was the point of these books or minus
1: yeah so so yeah thank you for asking about this this is the final category of books i should i should credit um i got the title of the category from um julia boffy's book on um books from london she has a study of books from london from  … I think 1475 to 1525 so it's late late manuscript and early print and so she studies mm-hmm. books that that are related to London from that period and she talks she used the term DIY book and I was like that's exactly what I'm what I'm what I'm after in this last category um, and that is where the distance between users and producers has has is gone, and that users are producers. It's kind of collapsed into one. In other words, it's a DIY book, do it yourself book, because you're making the book for yourself. Um, and this is very much a live option in the late Middle Ages. Um, so uh, there are examples where you'll have like lay people producing books for their household. there's a famous one in the Bodleian, Ashmole 61, where the scribe signs his name a bunch of times, so we know it's got to be by this guy because he's not shy about splashing his name across the manuscript. And it seems to be a lay householder. It could be a priest copying books for the household. We don't know for certain who this guy was. but it's a collection of books that would be a collection of texts that would be useful for how there's entertainment texts, there's there's romances, but there's also like a poem called "Rules for Purchasing Land," which doesn't sound very literary, but it teaches you how to like profitably um, acquire more more property. So there's those kinds of secular books. Then we have examples of monks and priests copying books for themselves as well. Um, So that could be for like private reading, could be for use in their clerical duties. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's a whole range of texts. But the idea is that if you were literate and you had access to um, to you know you had a text that you were interested in, you wanted your own copy. I mean nowadays you just go on Amazon or 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 you it was a short poem you could take a screenshot or mm. shot with your phone or something um, but back back in the in the late manuscript period lots of people made their copied their own book so i presumably you'd borrow the exemplar from someone if you found a text you liked and then you just sit down to produce your own copy
0: mm. and and uh, i think to bring it all the discussion together in general these this this, this um, the, the criteria that you use and this uh, relationship between producers and users. How does it show? How does how do you how does it show this dynamic between the uh, user and producers of the of the texts?
1: So uh, can you just clarify what you exactly what you mean by this question? Well, Sam, so d- asking... does it
0: the, what what in terms of the relationship between this, What does this idea of proximity tell us? And um, I'm also curious to know if. We know anything about readers, mm-hmm. but I know that you, that's not a topic that you cover in the book. So I'm just asking that if you might have come across yeah, something, for
1: sure. um So I guess that th- that's again getting at the real heart of of what I'm after in this book, and that um is that um, I'm pushing away from thinking about the. I want us to think about the manuscript book as a fundamentally different artifact than the printed book, mm-hmm. because the printed book is a commodity. The books, if we use the term "book" and just think it's a stable concept, us in 2024, or we in 2024 using the term, um, it can be a little bit misleading. And so, what I'm trying to get at with this, with my book, with my study, is that manuscripts were um, were made at a juncture uh, where where two human beings came together. Right, you have a user and a producer, and that is kind of the animating concept behind what you know. It's like the core of what a of what a manuscript book is. Now, in my book, I'm trying to flesh out the fact that that point of juncture. Can take on a, a variety of forms, and it can be something that's kind of like a commodity. When you're sending off to have a high-end book made, there's a kind of great distance between you, as there is today, a great distance between us and the books that we read. Um, but books can come, can re, can can come all the way. You know, the kind of distance can collapse all the way to the point that we're that people are making their own books. Um, and, and in the realm of books, that's not something that really exists very much anymore today. We've lost the like sense of people making their own books because books are such a commodity. Mm. Um, mm. So I'm just try- – I was trying to kind of recover the – what you might call the kind of sociology or anthropology of reading mm. um, or of, of owning literature and producing literature. Um, a- as far as readers, I don't – I mean I used reader as just a probably a stable concept. I use produ- oh, producer and user or reader and scribe. They're kind of interchangeable terms. Um as the person who owns the book. In terms of how they engage with the text and the kind of um you know what readers were doing with their text is not something I'm taking up in this book. Mm-hmm. I sort of just am working with the assumption that the user is the stable Entity that receives the text from you know the text that they commissioned from whoever whoever made the book for them or if they're if it's a DIY person they're making it for themselves um, it's a separate set of um, kind of methodological investigations in terms of what readers did with their mm-hmm. books um, I think it's a fascinating set of questions it's just not what I'm what I'm getting mm-hmm. into um, yeah. in this book because it's probably um, too long. The books my book my study is probably too long as it is but um i love i love these kind of reader questions
0: mm. yeah and i guess yeah you're right i guess it kind of requires a whole different book to be written about the dynamics between readers and this so but anyway and, and again just to go just to show how I, because i guess i mentioned at the beginning that i'm not really a, a, a an expert in medieval literature i'm just mm-hmm. an enthusiast and up to mm-hmm. a few years ago i used to think that for example chaucer wrote his own poems and then he had the manuscripts Oh, right.
1: Yeah, we have nothing. Well, probably we have no autograph, um, you know, anything written in Chaucer's hand. Um, Mm -hmm. That's that's another contested question. Yeah.
0: So a lot of times, I guess, I'm guessing that the authors had the materials, whatever it was, but you had scribes writing writing and also decorating uh, those writings. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Before we come to the end of the question, I always ask this question. Is there any... Other projects that you're working on? Any books that we might expect to see anytime soon?
1: Um, well, soon in academic terms, maybe, but of course we work um, slowly, especially people who work on manuscripts. So, so don't expect anything to like come out in a year, <laughs> in the next year or so. But, uh, yeah, I'm working on um a related set of projects um about the manuscripts of one of the so one of the four poems that I um that I tackle. In my book is called the prick of conscience um it was at least by to judge by number of surviving manuscripts it was the most popular um piece of verse in english from the middle ages so um it's one of the four texts as i said that i look at in my book so in my book i've already look, kind of looked at all of the copies of this poem but i was using it as one of the pieces of evidence to enter in in the book that we're talking about here um to enter into this dial into this discussion about um the the sort of users versus producers. So now in this in this current project, I'm doing two different things. Um, I'm uh, along with. um, Dr. David Gura, who is the rare books and manuscripts librarian at the University of Notre Dame, where they have they own a fragment of the prick of conscience, Um, he and I have. Been collaborating on a catalog of the manuscripts of the Prick of Conscience, so detailed descriptions of of each manuscript. Sort of thinking about um, how many scribes are involved, what other texts is copied with, with the material it's copied on, um, relationships between texts. So, um, so we're kind of slowly working our way through all mm-hmm. of the copies and writing detailed descriptions. And then, I'm I'm working on a I'm working on a a book which is just going to be a, a series of essays about. What we find out by really studying the whole corpus of the prick of conscience manuscripts, because I just scratched the surface um, in my book and my as I said, like the prick of conscience is just at the service of a narrative about in my book is is at the service of a narrative about manuscript culture in general Mm -hmm. so for this for this project i'm I'm really trying to look at things like well you asked about reader response i'm really looking at where did people um where did scribes tend to put their emphasis in their marginal notation scribes and readers tend to put their Mm -hmm. emphasis in their marginal notation what because the prick of conscience is about um it's the the word prick means to like prod or goad Mm -hmm. you um to goad your conscience into reforming Performing your life as you prepare for death, which can be coming for anyone at any moment, Um, and so you know it talks about the the um, like the decrepitude of the human body, the pains of hell, the joys of heaven. You know um, why you know why you shouldn't trust certain parts of earthly life, etc. And so I want to go through and, and really study like where were people pausing and underlying or saying you know note this, um, and then I'm also interested in thinking about where Renaissance early modern readers after the Reformation this text continued to be owned, and so you'll have people kind of carrying out debates about Protestantism versus Catholicism mm. in the mm. margins. And you'll have mm-hmm. clearly Catholic reader, post-Reformation readers um, writing kind of approbatory comments, and then you'll have mm-hmm. Reformation readers saying like this is BS and blah, blah, blah. So kind of tracing out the cultural history of this really important poem um, through its manuscripts. That's, that's the, um, the book that I'm working
0: on. Well, certainly hope to be able to talk to you about that book, uh, but I'm sure that, as you said, it takes time, but I'll Mm -hmm. keep my eyes open. (laughs) Great, Uh, Dr. Michael Jensen, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us about your wonderful book, uh, The Middle English Book, Scribes Readers, 1350 to 1500, published by Oxford University Press.
1: Okay. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation.